turn with me to Ezra chapter 9. This is on pages 647 and 648. 647 in your pew Bible. It's on your large print sheets as well, but 647 and continuing on to 648. Ezra chapter 9, reading all 15 verses. My friends, hear now the word of God. When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, O my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. For our iniquities, we, our kings, and our priests have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as it is this day. And now, for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place, that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves. Yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, What shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. Now therefore, do not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. 
and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. Well, beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we again come to Ezra chapter 9 today for the second time, in which we see that Ezra prays to God for the people's forgiveness. Ezra prays to God for the people's forgiveness. I'll just remind you again of the setting of Ezra, the first six chapters dealing with the rebuilding of the temple. Now the second act of this play, if we could put it that way, of course it's a true story, it's not a fiction, uh, like you think of in terms of drama, but if you think it in those terms, the second act, chapters 7 through 10, the reform of religion. <clears throat> We've already looked at chapters uh, 7 and 8, and uh, Ezra returning uh, to the land and bringing people back with him. And now we come to chapter 9. And last week we looked at the problem. We looked at the problem. The problem was that the leaders came to Ezra to report the serious problem. And what was that problem? What was the sin with which they were dealing? It was non-separation from the peoples of the land. It was intermarriage with the peoples of the land. And, you know, it is kind of interesting, isn't it, as you think about this, because there would probably be some ethnic differences or even physical differences, but basically you're looking at all Semitic peoples here, okay? You're looking at, at folks that wouldn't look that much different from each other. And yet, there is this call for separation, which points to the fact that the ultimate issue, the fundamental issue, was not ethnic. It was not in terms of ethnicity or race, for that matter, but rather for purity of religion. That's what this matter was all about. Because, you see, when people, when the children of Israel would intermarry with the folks of these other nations, what would happen? is that people, the, the people of God, would go away from the true and living God and would start to worship these idols. Now, in doing so, in terms of this intermarriage then, with non-Israelites, they are thus guilty of disobeying God's particular command, his explicit command. And they also involve their families in this, corrupting them. And so you see the, that this is a very deep problem. The children of Israel had profaned, had despised their special place and favor. 
They expose themselves and their children to the peril of idolatry. And they would have played right into the hands, as we looked at last week, of this idea of trying to mix not just the peoples, but mixing the religion. That's the point. There's only one true God, and there's therefore only one true religion. But not only the non-separation, but also the abominations, that which is abhorrent, that which is in that which is distasteful. You may have heard of the abominable snowman. Okay, so that term abomination. And of course, there were many aspects to this abominable, this hateful, this distasteful um, matter that we have here. The multiplying of wives, which is contrary to God's law. It's supposed to be one man and one woman for life. That's what marriage is. And of course, doing so also for political and economic advantage. But it also refers to the fact that God's people would be exposed to other sins. False worship we've already talked about today. That's bad enough. But then the sacrificing of their children, as we just sang from Psalm 106, sacrificing their children, their sons and their daughters, sacrificing them to these false gods. And of course today, as we mentioned last week, we have abortion as an example of that that is even celebrated in some churches. And then the perverted sexual practices, as in Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19, and today, of course, homosexuality and promiscuity. A people of Israel and the leaders were all involved. So that's the problem that we looked at last week. And now, secondly, today, we want to look at the reaction, the reaction. So first of all, let's look at Ezra's reaction to this. So he gives these signs of grief in terms of his clothing, his, his uh, garment. This would have been um, his uh, tunic, perhaps, that he would have had on his body there. Uh, the mantle, which would have been the outer garment or the cloak. And so you see here in verse 3, what did he do? When I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe, my garment and my mantle. He was stripped naked, as it were, not literally naked, but as a token of humiliation, as a token of humiliation, and even of death at times. So his clothing, he tore it. He was so upset. What about his hair? What about his hair? He, what did he do? As we see here in verse, um, again in verse 3, he plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. So he didn't pluck it all out, okay? Uh, Deuteronomy 14, Leviticus 19 apparently would prohibit taking off all of one's hair as the pagans did, but nevertheless... He was so concerned about this that he even plucked out some of that hair. And then, of course, he was astonished. He was appalled. This is the, what has been described as sort of a, a shocked silence in a time of sorrow, of lamentation. It's like the, the picture here is that of like opening one's mouth 
and letting the jaw drop. He can't quite understand. So Ezra then very much was affected, was he not? And you see what's interesting about it, was he involved in this sin? Well, not directly, was he? Isn't that interesting? So it wasn't that he directly was guilty of these things, but he didn't say, well, I'm okay. After all, I haven't done these things. No, there is a corporate responsibility here, and he accepted that. And so we find, and of course this is sort of what we find in in Moses, in Exodus chapter 32, where, where Moses says, God, let me be blotted out of the book of life. Let me be blotted out of the book. I will take this upon myself uh, in terms of this great sin that has been committed. And in a sense, that what we, that's what we see here with Ezra as well. And all of this we see was until the evening sacrifice, which, by the way, is again a reminder of where the answer is. The answer is not in us or our sincerity. The answer is in the sacrifice to appease the wrath of God and to reconcile us to him through Jesus Christ. So Ezra then, these signs of grief, this astonishment, and then the others. Notice the the reference here in verse 4. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel. Those who tremble at the words of the God of Israel, the God-fearers. This is almost a uh, a technical term. You'll find this later in the next chapter, uh, in uh, chapter 10 and verse 3. Those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And we also see this, by the way, in Isaiah 66. In Isaiah 66, the last uh, chapter of the great prophecy of Isaiah 66 in verse 2, for all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord, but on this one will I look, who? On him who is poor, that's a poor in spirit, of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. And again, verse 5, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. You, hear, you who tremble at my word. And my friends, we too should be in awe when God speaks, however, whatever he says. Now these who trembled at the word of the Lord gathered to Ezra. Apparently the news spread and they wanted to submit to his leadership and see what could be done. Now, my friends, why was there such concern? Well, let me give you two or three reasons in terms of this. First of all, because of the dishonor done to God, and that should always be our concern in terms of sin. The dishonor that was done to God. Whenever we sin, we sin against God, not just against others. Sometimes we sin against others, too. But it is ultimately sin against God. And so the dishonor that is done to him, the God of Israel. Secondly, because of the mischief that the people had done to themselves. They did this to themselves. This wasn't some external enemy. They did this to themselves. And so because of that. And then thirdly, because of the danger 
of God's wrath against them for this great sin. You know, the sins of others should cause us great sorrow. The sins of others should cause us great sorrow. Our sins should cause us great sorrow, but the sins of others too. Psalm 119, 136, rivers of water stream down my cheeks because they keep not thy law. We have reason to be amazed then at the scandals and the sins of professing believers. But let's, let's apply this then in two particular ways today. The first is I want us to understand the reason for Ezra's extreme reaction. I want us to understand why Ezra reacted with such horror and in this very extreme way. Now, as I as we talk about this, I want to be very clear. Sin is serious. All sin is serious. Every sin is rebellion against God. Every sin is fatal. That is to say, any sin is enough to condemn us, to condemn you to hell. The soul that sins, it shall die. Even just one sin. And just think how many sins you have committed and how many sins I have committed. Nevertheless, we also have to be clear that some sins are worse than others. They're all bad. They're all wicked. There's nothing good about them, but some are worse than others. Psalm 19, verse 13, keep me back from presumptuous sins. That is to say, from sinning with a high hand, from knowing, having known what I should do, and then I, I go ahead and rebel against it anyway instead of just falling. Keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. My friends, it is a sin to imagine doing something wrong, but carrying it out is even worse. That's true in terms of sexual perversion, such as homosexuality, for example. It's wrong to think that's perfectly okay and to fantasize about that. It's wrong to fantasize about murdering somebody. It's wrong to fantasize about robbing a bank. But carrying out any of those things is worse. And we have a particularly bad example, particularly wicked example of sin and rebellion here in Ezra chapter 9. So some sins, therefore, call for different responses and different reactions. Now, if, if we started plucking out our hair, if I, I'll put it this way. If I started plucking out my hair every time I sinned, I'd have even less hair than I do now. Certainly, I have less than 25 years ago, but I have a lot less, right? But, therefore... We should always be sorry for our sin. We should always repent. We should always lament when we have sinned. But here there's something very extreme about it. So why Ezra's strong and extreme reaction? Well, first of all, notice the pattern, the pattern of sin that was being established, which made the sin worse. The pattern. And so this was not simply a one-off type of thing. It wasn't simply... 
something didn't have any other repercussions. There's a pattern that is being established here. Secondly, notice the plan that was undertaken. Now, my friends, you don't get married on a whim. You have to think about it, right? You, you have to think about it. You have plan for it. Even if you just went to the courthouse and got married, you still have to get on MARTA and go to the courthouse and so forth. There's a plan here, right? Well, that's what you have here with regard to these marriages. So this was not something that just took them by surprise. They planned it. They planned it over a period of time in terms of carrying out these marriages. It wasn't a sudden temptation. They planned it. And so that, too... Uh, increases the wickedness here, if you will, and the concern. But thirdly, what we find here, besides the pattern of sin and the plan, thirdly, the plot against the covenant community, the plot that threatened its very existence. Now, if you were on a, on a boat, on a, let's say a, a ship, a cruise ship, you're on a cruise ship, and there, you know, and, and a couple people got in a fight with each other. Well, that'd be bad, right? right? And we'd be concerned about that sin and so forth. But you'd especially be concerned if actions taken would, were to sabotage that ship, to poke holes in the hull so that it ended up sinking. That'd be far worse. And in a sense, that's what we have here. This is why Ezra was so absolutely concerned. Ezra had just come back into the land in order to reestablish proper worship. And with a view toward the coming of the Messiah, including the, uh, the reestablishment of the sacrifices, pointing forward to the Messiah and also preparing for him to come for him to be born into that covenant community, for Jesus to be born, to take on human flesh several hundred years later. And you see, in one sense, what was at stake here was the gospel itself. It wasn't just sin, but it was the gospel itself that was at stake. And notice our, look at some of these verses here today. Look at verse 11. Um, you, we have verse 10, you say, forsaken your commandments, which were commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another with their purity. You see, my friends, salvation, when it says lands here, it's not simply referring to, um, you know, the, the territory, if you will. It's, it's meaning, it's referring to the people. Salvation, you see, means that the people are to be holy. They're to be clean rather than unclean. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. And now for a little while grace has been shown to us, has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a a nail, a peg in his holy place, that our God may enlighten our eyes. Salvation involves being enlightened. Once I was blind, now I see. But you see, that was being threatened. Look at verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, 
may enlighten our eyes, give us a measure of revival in our bondage. Verse 9, for we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to stir us up. The The salvation requires the Holy Spirit's reviving. Look at verse 12. Now, therefore, do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. My friends, salvation leads to inheritance, but it's not simply the physical inheritance. It's the fact that we are the inheritance of God and that, we, and that God is our inheritance too. That heaven is our inheritance. And you see, all of these things were being rejected and treated with contempt by means of this sin of intermarriage with these pagan peoples. And this is not far from what is referred to as the unpardonable sin, is it? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which means the turning away from his testimony and then continuing in that rejection. That's why Ezra was so concerned. Can you imagine, therefore, Ezra's alarm and his need to take decisive action, but also how overwhelmed he was with grief and sorrow and vehement desire for God's people to repent. So understand, understand what's going on here in terms of Ezra's extreme reaction. Number two, are you a God-fearer? Are you a God-fearer? We've already looked at verse four, those that trembled at the words of the God of Israel. Why did they tremble? Well, my friends, they trembled because of the violation of God's law in and of itself. They trembled also because of the severity of God's justice and judgments. And the man then of contrite heart, of of humility, of being poor in spirit, it is that man in whom the Lord is pleased. In a moment we will sing from the 51st Psalm, and I'm sure you remember many of those words. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Uphold me by thy generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted to thee. It is a man, a woman, boy, a girl, who is humble, that is pleasing to God. And yet, let's be clear, there is nothing meritorious in those who tremble. It is not because of their goodness or sincerity that God accepts them. Their humility is a sign that they are not trusting in themselves but that they are trusting in God's mercy through Jesus Christ, the one who was sacrificed 
at the cross. And so may it be true for us. Oh, may it be true that we would be those who tremble at the words of our God. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And our Father, we pray that thy Holy Spirit would indeed take this word and apply it in such a way that Christ himself would get the glory. Christ himself, the one who died, the one who rose again, the one who ascended into glory. May he be praised. And so, O Lord, work in our midst, work in our hearts this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.